Benny Medina, who was the head of Warner Brothers at that time, president, I think, I, I remember him him being on speakerphone in the office at Coachella and basically saying, if me and the business isn't the first single, I can't guarantee that there'll be a second single. Here it comes! Here it comes! You're listening to Fresh Era, a podcast where we bring you stories from the legends of the golden era of hip-hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music before it was mainstream. I'm your host, Craig Smith. On today's episode, we dive into the story of Master A. He's widely regarded as a hip-hop legend, having been a part of the Juice Crew with Big Daddy Kane, Craig G, Cool G Rap, and Marley Marl. He also went on to release hit albums in the early 90s and was a part of the original Crooklyn Dodgers. From his early beginnings in New York as a DJ to hitting the charts as an MC, Master Ace's story is one of perseverance and adaptation that ultimately leads him down a path to discover what life is all about. Master Ace was born Duval Clear. I was born December 4th, 1966, Brookdale Hospital, New York City. My parents were never married. My, I have very, very few memories of my father. Most of my memories of my father are from photos that I saw, because he, he apparently was around when I was first born, because there's pictures of him holding me as a baby and stuff like that. And there's a few pictures of him and my mom early, like I was like one or less than one years old. And then clearly something happened in the relationship and then he wasn't around anymore. And then it was just my mother and my grandmother. Uh, my, my, my grandmother helped raise me. Um, and we lived in an apartment with, um, with my two uncles as well. It was four of us living there, my mother, grandmother, two uncles. And all the adults had to do what they had to do in order to make ends meet. My grandmother worked. Um, she was back, back, we're talking about the, the late 60s, early 70s. What she did was she worked for, 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 for rich white people. She was a nanny, essentially. She looked after their children during the day. Part of me feels like she was a little bit maybe embarrassed that, that that's the work that she had to do. So she never talked about work. Like very rarely did she talk about work. My mom, my mom was like a secretary going back and forth into Manhattan. And very early in my life, I was a, a latchkey kid. I was I had, my, I had a key around my neck on a string. I had to let myself in and out. And this arrangement worked all the way up to middle school. By then, the walk home was a little longer and a little dangerous. Because I had to walk through another part of Brownsville called Ocean Hill. There was a guy in my building um, named Smokey. Smokey was very well respected in the neighborhood. He was the leader of uh, one of the big gangs in Brownsville in the 70s. He had a grown man body, but he was super short. Wore the thickest glasses. You would never think that people would be afraid of a guy like this, but he had a reputation. A reputation that would come in handy as young Duval would have to walk through Brownsville by himself. When I got to seventh grade, you know, um, and I had to walk up that hill, Smokey was going to the same school. He had been left back a couple times, so he was like redoing seventh grade or eighth grade over again. And with this, his grandmother saw an opportunity. I remember the first day of school, he came down, she made breakfast, you know, bacon, eggs, you know, sat there, we ate. She was cutting a deal with Smokey to look after me because we walked to school every day. And I just knew walking to school with Smokey, I was good. Like, nobody was messing with me because everybody in the neighborhood knew who he was. And when he says nobody would mess with them because of Smokey's reputation, he's not exaggerating. One day we're walking to school, and there was a guy walking the opposite direction. I recognized the guy. His name was Mark. He lived in my project's next building over. And Smokey, as we're walking by, Smokey just cold cocks him in the mouth. Boom! 
blood coming out of his mouth. He grabs his mouth, but he knows that this is Smokey. He's not fighting back. He was like, why you do that? He's like, I don't know. I just felt like punching somebody in the face today. But as volatile as Smokey could be, he really did have young Duval's back. And he wouldn't let him get into too much trouble while he was around. I noticed that every day, because what we do is before the bell rang, we would all kind of sit in this little mini park right outside the school, just on, on the end of the school. It was like little concrete uh, benches and stuff. And we would just kind of sit out there, hang out, bunch of dudes talking or whatever. And then the bell would ring and I would go into school and Smokey would stay out there with these dudes. So one day I decided when the bell rang, I was just like, I'm gonna stay out here. I was kind of curious to see what's going on, kind of what's shaking out here. So the bell rings and he stays put, watching Smokey and his friends. He's like, he takes out this little gun. It's like a 22 or a 25, like a midnight special, like nothing, just a little gun. And he's showing it, passing it around. They're talking about, that's nice, whatever, whatever. And I'm just watching the gun get passed around and I'm listening to the conversation. Smokey looks around, notices that I'm sitting here, comes over like, what the fuck you doing? Yo, no, 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 this ain't you. Go to school, go to school. And I was like, okay, like, I'm not gonna argue with Smokey. And I went to school and he was like, yo, don't ever do that shit again, this is not you. I get emotional talking about that story. One, because I remember it so clearly. And I always wonder like, if he had done the opposite thing, what my life could have turned out to be. If he had encouraged me to stay out there and be with them and roll with them, I'd be a different person. My life would be completely different. And with an environment that was relatively safe, he was free to be influenced by music, first at home. My mother and my uncle were really the two real music heads. They played all the soul stuff, so I would hear Marvin Gaye. Earth, Wind & Fire was like on repeat in the house. My older uncle, who's, who's, who's the middle child, he's the between my mom and my younger uncle, he was like a weird dude. He would play Elton John, which nobody in the projects was playing Elton John. He would, he would play Benny and the Jets full volume with his door closed. Benny and the Jets. What, what, is he, what is this? What's he playing? And right about the time he hit middle school, he started to hear another sound that was curious. We were hearing these tapes that were floating around New York City and making their way to Brooklyn. And, you know, all these tapes had DJs just cutting up breakbeats and stuff like that. It was Grand Wizard Theodore, Flash, Dr. Rock, all these different DJs from around New York City, some from uptown, some from Queens, some from Staten Island. And they were all cutting and scratching breakbeats. We would record uh, the world-famous Supreme Team on WHBI, which was like a pirate radio show. You are here with the world-famous Supreme Team on WHBI 105.9 FM on your dial. Now listen. They came on like 2 and two to 4 in the morning, and I would like set my alarm and wake up at 2 a.m., press record, go back to sleep. Hearing those breakbeats, that was the beginning of, because the, the idea of DJing and all that was exciting, and we wanted to, to do it, emulate it, try it. So he and some other friends who were being influenced by this new music got together. We put together a little DJ crew. You know, I bought one turntable. My friend had another brand of turntable. Somebody else brought in a mixer. So it was like our crew was basically formed based on who could bring pieces of equipment to our setup. You know, you got a turntable, are right, you down. You got a mixer, bet, you down. So they would take two copies of select disco records and put them on the turntables. And we would just make our little tapes, trying to like kind of emulate those tapes. And then in seventh grade, one of my classmates, this kid named Michael Moore, later known as D DJ Spark, 
we were talking about it, and he's like, yeah, I got, I got, I got breakbeats. So I was like, word? He, he invited me to his crib, and he loaned me two volumes of, um, back then it was the Super Breaks and Beats. They had the octopus on the cover with the records in the, in the, in the arms. And he loaned me two volumes. I take them home, four records on each side, four songs on each side. And each song had one of the known breaks that all the DJs uptown were cutting. Man, you talk about happy, excited. Like that was like, probably spent four hours cutting up these different break beats just and making tapes. And that was really the beginning of the whole thing for me was, was, was those break beats from Spark and trying to DJ with my crew. And naturally, he was going to need a DJ name. I was DJ D. Not very, not very original, but that's who I was, DJ D. Young DJ D was about to embark on a journey through hip-hop that would go down in history. He was about to rub shoulders with some hip-hop icons and create a career in music that he never saw coming. After the break, DJ D becomes Master Ace. He gets a record deal and appears on one of the most notable hip-hop songs to date. Then later, he gets a crash course in music industry politics, leading him to have to fight for his identity and save his career. We'll be right back. <laughs> Let me clear my throat. I am the legendary DJ Cool, and I'm here to tell you about a new stupid fly podcast I'm on called Headspin, the classic hip-hop trivia gamecast. Headspin! Come listen as two golden era gladiators compete head-to-head to see who will be victorious in their knowledge of completely useless hip-hop trivia. Headspin! The winner will go home with cold hard cash, while the loser will be forced to spin the dreaded hip-hop wheel of consequences. Make sure to subscribe now on Apple, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcast and follow at Headspin Game Show to get in on the action. Headspin, the only classic hip-hop gamecast. Headspin! Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome back. Before the break, young master Ace was DJ D. He and some friends had put together a DJ group, and they were determined to make breakbeat takes like the ones they were hearing from all around New York. But something was missing. A voice. I didn't start really writing rhymes until those breakbeat tapes started getting boring. Because we would go outside, sit, sit on the bench, play the tape, and it's just scratching and cutting over and over and over. Like, the tapes that we were hearing from these other parts of New York, they had, they had rappers rapping on them, too. 
I was like, man, we need to spice these tapes up. Maybe I'll try to put some vocals on, on, on one of the tapes. He gives it a shot, and it works out. So he does it again and again. After a minute, like, it was like, yo, like, kind of dope. You know, I was actually better at that than DJing. I, I started focusing more on the vocal part, and it, it made our tapes better, and I started to get more attention from that. But even with all this attention, rap at the time wasn't really a viable career path. Like, it wasn't even a thing to become. It was just, this is what I do. So he went to high school like any other typical teenager. Of course, I, I, I was on a football team, and there were guys on the football team that rapped. So we would have our little team ciphers, everybody that rapped on the team, and I stood out among those guys. We were the Come Alive Five. We formed a little rap group, and we performed at the talent show. We won, and so that was kind of a big deal. And while he was transitioning from DJing to rapping, he needed a new name. Yeah, I was still DJ D. I was kind of using D-Ski, too, because I was writing graph, and D-Ski was kind of like my first little graph name. At that time, Ski was kind of like the end suffix to put on your name because Ski meant cool, snow, cool. And then I think I think the older guys used Ski to refer to cocaine. And then a little bit later, dudes started using Master and Grandmaster and less using Ski was more 70s. And so I didn't want to stay with the Ski because that was kind of old school. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go with one of these Masters. So I was coming home from somewhere and I saw a graph piece in my neighborhood. And the graffiti artist put an ace of spade in the graph piece. And I was like, ace, ace. That's kind of dope, ace. I'll throw master in front of it because everybody's master. So boom, that's how, that's how I became master ace. Hip-hop wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, even as he graduated from high school and went on to the University of Rhode Island. About a four-hour drive from New York City. Um, and it was a little bit of a culture shock when I got there. At that time, URI was probably 96% white. And I was like one of the only student, black students that wasn't on a team. I had aspirations to play sports, um, but wound up not doing it. Instead, he was focused on academics and hip hop. And it wasn't too long before hip hop took the spotlight. I, I probably think the moment that I realized that it was this was for me was my sophomore year. I was home for Christmas break. A friend of mine, Scooter Rockwell, he called me up and he said that they're having this rap contest down at, at, at the skating rink in Queens. Do you want to roll through? All right, cool. So we met on the train. I had a rap that I was going to say, that I was going to, you know, perform. But I had never been on stage by myself. I'd never been on stage other than the talent show at high school two years prior. I mean, I'm on the train programming the drum machine to my rap so that it would have the dropouts on the right lines and stuff. Like, I'm literally like... We're programming the drum machine on the train while on our way there. And for some reason, this all came natural. It's strange because I wasn't nervous. I wasn't worried. It was like, it felt normal to me. It felt like this was gonna be cool. And I and I get up on stage and I spit this 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 rhyme that was very Lottie Dottie-esque, Slick Rick Lottie Dottie. I, I kind of used a couple of really funny punchlines and a surprise ending. All that was like, kind of like, blew the crowd away. And while all the other contestants sounded alike, he stood out. I came with an original drum programmed beat. And the crowd ate it up. He ended up going to the next round of performances. And here he was going to blow the crowd away with a remix to the songs he had already performed the night before. So people that came back to see it, they wouldn't hear the same rap. And I remember being on the train, the F train, memor trying to memorize this rhyme. I didn't really have it all the way, and I was messing up on the way there. I'm like, fuck, oh, I'm gonna screw this up. And But as soon as I stepped on that stage, all the nervousness 
went out the window. And I was like, I felt like I belonged up there and I felt super confident and didn't miss a line. It was over. He's like, yo, he wins. So the first prize was six hours of studio time with Marley Maul. W-B-L-K. This is the original Mr. Magic. Rap attacking is coming to you all the way live as Marley Maul cuts it up. One more time, Marley Maul. Second prize was $500. And in my mind, that was more, I was like, five, I want the $500, really? Like, you know, like, who, who doesn't want cash? I'm in college too, broke college kid. Little did I know that the 500, the, the, that the first prize, the six hours studio time would, would, would turn into a career, because that's what happened. But Master Ace wouldn't know this was a possibility. To him, this was just a cool opportunity to record with Marley Marl. But my first session with him, I could tell he didn't want to really even do the session. Um, he actually stuck me in a in a pre-production room in one of the back bedrooms. This was in Queensbridge Projects in his, his mom's apartment. But he stuck me in one of the pre-production rooms with MC Shan to do drum programming. Shan didn't even do production, but it was just like, it was his way of burning the time just to get this guy out of here. But that wouldn't last too long. So it wasn't until probably I recorded that first demo. I think that's when he started saying, oh wait, this kid might be might be all right. He had the skill and the confidence. A more eager kid might have been too nervous, too nervous to get in the booth and actually perform. But this wasn't Master Ace's problem. See, the thing about being from Brooklyn is that we carry ourselves like nothing impresses us. Even if we are a little impressed inside, we'll never show you that. So being in the studio with him, I never showed anything because because to me, most of the guys that was making records weren't better than me at, at rap, at rapping. They're doing it, I could do it. I felt like I belonged and I had to have that mentality. I was never intimidated or felt like I didn't belong. I always felt like I, I, I belonged. And he put in the work to prove it. Over time, he and Marley Marl would create a lot of demos. And since Marley Marl was on the radio in New York, he used this platform to get a gauge on how good the records actually were. He would play demos as exclusives but never play them again. And one of Master Ace's earliest demos was a song called Howard Park. Howard Park was the, the basketball court in my projects that I walked through to get to elementary school where they would have the jams, the outside jams. That became kind of the spot. So I made a song called Howard Park. That was the first demo that Marley actually played on the radio. And the people in my neighborhood was like, yo, I heard your song. Oh, yeah. When's it coming out? I don't know. I don't know, because I didn't know. I was just, you know, recording joints. Yeah, he was recording joints, and he was also getting acquainted with the Juice crew. Mr. Magic and Marley Ma had put together a crew of MCs like Biz Marquis, Roxanne Shantae, MC Shan, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, and Craig G. And because he was at the studio at the right time, he got the opportunity to be on a song that would make hip-hop history, The Symphony. The only reason I was even at the Symphony session, one, I was, I was being nosy. Because it's my first day meeting Kane, and I was a fan of his. I wanted to kind of hear this new, whatever he was going to say. I was excited to just hear the rap. So the plan was that it was supposed to be a Kane G-Rap du duet. Yo, Marley gives a slice. I get nice in my voice. twice as horrifying as this Letting it off, letting it off, beginning. Rough till the ending. You never been it. Craig G hears that they're going to this session, and he asked Marley, can I be on the song? Marley asked Kane. Kane was like... 
All right, Craig could be on it because he had heard Duck Alert. He thought Craig was pretty dope. All right, yeah, throw Craig on there. This gym is dedicated to all unoptimistics that thought I wasn't coming out with some exquisite rhymes. Craig didn't have a ride to, the, to Molly's house. Molly was driving, I was driving. So I'm literally just there as the extra, as the ride for Craig to get there. But I really stuck around because I wanted to hear this new record. Put the beat on. So out of nowhere, Molly just goes, yo, Ace, you got something for this? You got a little, just, just warm the mic up. These guys acting scared. Go in there and just spit something just to get them, get them loosened up. I was like, yeah, I, I got something. Yeah. You know, one of my memorized joints, one of my 15 memorized verses. When Molly tells me to go in the booth, immediately Kane and G-Rap sidebar, and they like go out in the in the hall, like, listen, man, who's putting this new guy on here for you? They were calling me glasses. Who's what's up with glasses? They used to throw glasses on the song. We, we didn't say that was cool. It was supposed to be just me and you. And then we say we Craig could be on the song. Now he's throwing glasses on the song. When they come back in, they're hearing my first take. Listen closely, so your attention's undivided. Many in the past have tried to do what I did. Just the way I came off then, I'm gonna come off stronger and longer, even with the trouble. I'll keep on going and flowing just like a river. I got a whole lot to give, so I'm a giver. Little at a time, new trails are blazing. Action is in effect and always stays in. Yeah. And now they like looking at each other like, yo, glasses is kinda kinda alright, yo, alright. And they was like, yo, leave, leave him on there. He's kinda dope. Leave him on the song. And that's how I ended up on the symphony. I, w- I, wasn't, I wasn't even supposed to be on the song. The symphony would be the first single from Marley Marl's album, In Control, Volume 1. The album and the single were released in 1988 and came equipped with their own music video. This thrust Master Ace into the spotlight. It was his first time on the record, his rap debut, and everyone was watching. I came back to my old neighborhood in the projects and people that barely spoke to me were having full conversations with me and it was just like a weird, it was weird to me. I, I didn't, that was my first time seeing the way people change based on what they perceive to be some sort of notoriety or, or stardom. I was like, you're acting weird. Like, why are you acting like that? Like, this, that's still me. Like, but people were acting different and, and that's just what it was. Master Ace got his first dose of the spotlight and this wasn't going to change anytime soon. His career was only going to go up. But still, he didn't see hip-hop as a career, nor did his support system at home. Coming up, Master Ace has to make a decision. It's either go get a job or go all in with hip-hop. And the stakes become very clear. Then later, Biz Marquee, the Crooklyn Dodgers, and Master Ace releases his most successful album, but he has to fight to be himself. We'll be right back. Hey, Chub Rock here. Thanks for tuning in to Fresh Era. Did you know that the guys over at Stupid Fly are doing this strictly out of love for 90s hip-hop culture? They may make it sound easy, but tons of time and money was spent on creating, writing, mixing these episodes. If you like what you hear, please do me a favor. Go to stupid-fly.com and pick up some merch to show your support. Then follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Stupid Fly Media. Come and be part of our community of golden era gladiators. Once again, that's stupid-fly.com. Now head over there and treat them right. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping 
dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Master Ace had participated in one of hip-hop's most legendary songs, The Symphony. He was in a music video with Marley Maul, Craig G, Cool G Rap, and Big Daddy Kane. He had every reason to believe that he was about to be a hip-hop star. But at this point, he was attending the University of Rhode Island, and becoming a rapper wasn't something that he had put much faith in. To his friends and family, he was a student. It was nothing for anybody in my family to look at as, oh, he's pursuing this, because I really wasn't. I was good at it, but I wasn't looking for a record deal. That wasn't what I was out trying to do. I was I was a college kid trying to get a degree. Got my degree, and when I when I when I graduated and I started going up because I was going to Marley's house leading up to graduation. But once I graduated, I was going there more regularly, working on material. And my mother's like, "What's happening? Like, you, where's your resume? Like, why aren't you getting job interviews? What's going on? Like, you got your degree. What are we doing here?" And I'm like, well, you know, I got this kind of this music thing going on, and she's not feeling that at all. Like, you're bugging. Like, no, you're not. We're not doing this. That that year, that that year, that '88 going into '89 was like kind of kind of tumultuous because we weren't seeing eye to eye. And for his mom, eventually, enough was enough. You have a now 22 year old, 21 year old son with a college degree, sleeping all day, waking up at one, two in the afternoon when you're at work. And when you come home, he's gone all night because he's in the studio. When she would go to work in the morning, she would put notes on the refrigerator to do, to do list. She would just make up shit, you know, go to the dry cleaners, go to the grocery store, buy eggs, go here, go do this. But then there was one particular day where uh, she left the list on the uh, refrigerator. But that day I had, to, I went out, I didn't go in the, ref- I didn't go in the kitchen at all. I got dressed. I took a shower, got dressed, and I went out the door. Never saw the note. Came home, none of the shit was done that she had on the list. Very next morning, get up, there's a note on the, on the, on the refrigerator. I want you out by your birthday. And while all of this is going on, he's about to sign a deal with Mr. Magic and Marley Marl's imprint under Warner Brothers, Cold Chillin' Records. Signed my deal and got my first advance, $25,000, right before my birthday, and moved out right before my birthday and never lived with my mother again. That was the most money I'd ever gotten at one time. Like, this is all my money, like I can do what I want with it. That's when it was like, oh, this music thing is serious. Like this, I could really, I didn't know how often I was gonna be getting $25,000, but it seemed pretty viable now. And with the $25,000 advance, he got to work on his album. The first single was called Together. Oh yeah, we're gonna get there together. And shortly before the album came out, they released his second single, Me and the Biz. I found this beat that Molly did. Uh, uh, uh-huh. Uh, uh, uh-huh. 
He's like, oh, no, that's for Biz. He was talking about Biz Marquis. Once he said that, it was like, okay, I, I know I'm not getting that beat, so on to the next thing. Probably a year later, I find out through the grapevine of the of Juice Crew and people talking that Biz and Marley are no longer working together. And Master Ace recalls that beat. I said, hey, whatever happened to that beat you did for Biz? Is that, he said, what beat? He didn't even remember the beat. And I searched through a whole bunch of tapes until I found it. This beat. And he was like, oh, no, he's not using it. I said, can I get it? Sure, you can have it. It sounds like a Biz beat. So I'm going to ask him to get on the song with me. He was like, all right, if he'll do it. So I wrote my verse. On and on and on is how the beat goes. So sell the British walkers and cut the afros. And dance till the feeling is gone in your toes. I wear shorts in the summer timberlands when it snows. And then I wrote business verses. So I changed my voice to, to my best possible biz impersonation. Hey, it's me, the diabolical. Yes, y'all. Yes, it's time yes. for me to fall into a funky beat to make you have a ball and like jump. Make you move your rump on the floor and like pump. Gave him the tape, listened to it, liked the song. He said, I'll do the song, but I'm not coming to Marley's house. And that's when I got caught in the middle of their shit because Marley's like, you're not taking my tapes to business house. So... I'm like, okay, well, well, how are we doing this? He's like, yo, let's just leave the song how it is. It's not, I don't like that, but I'm new. I'm brand new. I don't, you know, he's Marley. I'm nobody yet. So, and, you know, Warner Brothers decided that that was the single. It had, no, it was nothing like the rest of my album. I had all these really serious songs about upliftment and all this kind of stuff. And they weren't interested in any of that music. They were like, this is, business name is in it. It's a novelty record. This is what we're going to go with. Typical major, you know? And then uh, Benny Medina, who was the head of Warner Brothers at that time, president, I think. Um, I, I remember him him being on speakerphone in the office at Coachella and basically saying, if me and the business isn't the first single, I can't guarantee that there'll be a second single. The label basically put a gun to his head. It was either this single or the highway. And not only was it hard for him to accept the single, when he did the music video, the label had him act as a puppeteer, controlling a puppet dressed up as Biz Marquis. You know, we shot a video for it, the puppet, the whole bit, but none of it ever really felt right to me because that's not who I was as an artist. You know, coming back to the old neighborhood and the projects and you got this video with a puppet in it and it's a kind of a novelty, silly record. and. It wasn't a good feeling for me coming back to the neighborhood with that song. But despite his reservations about the song, it was actually pretty successful. It went top 10 on the rap charts, Billboard rap charts, maybe top five, I'm not sure. It wasn't a national record, but it was what it was. And while Biz Marquis wasn't upset about the song, there was some talk about him responding. There was a, there was a song that the chorus was, nobody can be you but you. I heard that he told somebody he's gonna redo that song as sort of a response to my song. But I think the label said, you, you can't do that. You can't put that out. I don't know what our relationship would have been had that record come out, because it might have got weird. I, I, I might have took that some way. But I'm, I, so I'm glad that didn't happen. Master Ace's solo debut album, Take a Look Around, was released in July of 1990. And with this, they released the singles Music Man. He who claims to be the music man. The, 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 yeah, I'm the music man. And moving on. I stayed up till dawn Cause I knew that it was time to move on
Despite his success with Cold Chillin' Records, his time with Mr. Magic and Marley Marl had run its course. When, once it was clear that I wasn't going to be going forward with Cold Chillin' anymore, they were okay with me shopping myself elsewhere. There were two labels that were interested. It was Rough House Records, which was in Philly, which was more kind of what I would have wanted to do, especially coming off me and the biz and all of that. I wanted something a little more rugged. And, and then, so Delicious Vinyl was the other potential landing place. At the time, Delicious Vinyl was the home of Tone Loke and Young MC. They were working on an album with the brand new Heavies, a rap album called Heavy Rhyme Experience. They weren't even 100% on signing me. So they said, you know, let's put Ace on this Heavy Rhyme Experience album, see what he comes up with. He records a song called Wake Me When I'm Dead. You must use your head to forget what they said. Cause in about a year, you'll be like, wake me when I'm dead. And they end up shooting a video. They, they did a triple video, so three songs from the album, all in one video. The video features Master Ace, Main Source, Main Source Forever, Who's Gotta Get More Clever, and Grand Pooba. And you wanna act with Grand Pooba gave ya? Once they shot the video for that, they, I was the only one that wasn't signed, and I think they viewed that as proof that I could I'm still gonna be a viable artist because it was good response from the audience about my song. And so they came to the table with more money than Rough House was offering. They seemed the most enthusiastic about signing me. And we did the deal with them all the way out in LA, which was foreign to me, but I was willing to go out and see what could happen because they had, they had had success. Tone Loke was platinum, Young MC was platinum. And so I was like, maybe I got a shot over here. We'll see. He was betting that Delicious Vinyl would launch him into the stratosphere. He had already shown that he could make records and be successful at it. But success comes at a cost. Sometimes the cost is your creativity. Master Ace was willing to do whatever it took to be successful. And it wouldn't be long until that was used against him. Coming up, Master Ace is stretched to the limit and almost walks away from hip-hop completely. But some earth-shattering news ends up working in his favor. Hear that story when we come back from a short break. Stay tuned. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. For Master Ace, he fell in love with hip-hop and became good at it. So good that he landed in the studio with Marley Marl, got a deal with Cold Chillin' Records. He put out a successful album, then got another deal with Delicious Vinyl. From the outside looking in, it must have looked like money and fame. And after receiving $25,000 for his first deal with Cold Chillin' Records, he knew that there was money to be made. 
but he was in for a rude awakening. I wasn't prepared for the in-between when the album is no longer popping, it's off the charts, and now you're supposed to work on your next album and you're getting no more shows because there's nothing, there's no videos out. And it's that transition in between albums that I wasn't prepared for. Definitely there was some humbling time time in between albums where, you know, I, I had to get a job at a temp agency. Like I, I remember, and this was after having videos out. I'm Symphony's out, Me and the Biz videos out, Music Man videos out. And now here I am sitting in the office with a shirt and tie on, fucking stuffing envelopes for, for, for eight hours. And because I had to pay the rent, you know? Um, and so up until then, I just thought it was like, oh, $25,000 checks just keep flowing in all the time. And it wasn't that. Nevertheless, Master Ace kept going. And now that he was signed to Delicious Vinyl, he felt it was time for a change. It was my instincts to rebrand because it was clear to me from looking at the landscape that solo artists weren't as viable anymore. It was about groups. All the biggest selling acts were all groups. Groups like The Far Side, Naughty by Nature, and Cypress Hill were taking over. And so I was like, I need to come out as a group. I need to figure out a way to rebrand myself as a group. So that I came up with Mass States Incorporated. I, I incorporated a couple guys that I went to high school with. Um, Ice, his brother Unique, who actually produced for me. I incorporated Lord Digger, female MC named Paula Perry. Like, it was kind of a way of me, of, for me to reinvent with the idea of there being other characters behind me that if a fan wasn't necessarily into me as an artist, maybe they liked Ice, or maybe they liked Neek, or maybe they liked Digger, or maybe they liked Paula. And in May of 1993, Master Ace Incorporated released the album Slaughterhouse. Even though it was really still a solo album, it wasn't a group. They didn't sign a group. It was my presentation of a group under my name. And one of the most memorable singles was a song called Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, that sample is from the same record as the symphony, Hard to Handle. Doom, doom. That's all it is, doom, doom, over and over again. Unique, when he, when he created that beat, it was supposed to be me, him, and Ice on the song. We recorded our verses. It's the offbeat, on beat. Man with the most, uh. like hostess, I bake MCs, oh, and you know this. Yeah. So one, two, three, four, boom, the bell is tolling. I'm rolling with Obdana and I'm holding my swollen. Lord Digger was there after we laid our verses down. He had been asking all these sessions, like, when can I get on something? When can I get on something? And I did just, there just was no opening for him. And I felt bad and I was like, yo, go in the booth, let me see what you, what you, what you spit. And he went in there and he spit the rhyme that he had. It was a struggle because it was, it was way off beat. Like we, we sat there, we coached him for probably a good hour until he got the verse. You know, he wrote it, but we had to help him be on beat and, and to say it a certain way. Lord Digger, the microphone mutilator with the hardcore data, the mass motherfucker like potatoes. Master Ace Incorporated was on a roll. Also releasing the single from the album, Jeep Ass Nigga. You know, the Master Ace don't play when it comes to my bass. This ain't a blast from the past, it's a boomer from the future. I'm a Jeep Ass Nigga. Then Master Ace made hip-hop history again. Along with MCs Buckshot and Special Ed, they composed the group The Crooklyn Dodgers in tandem with Spike Lee's 1994 film, Crooklyn. We be doing it up Crooklyn style. What does it take to get you out? My mentality is getting iller, killer. Instinct is trying to infiltrate, but wait. I know you want to enter, but I can't let you in. My mind stays the maddest. I'm gone with the wind. 
To the outside world, everything seemed to be going great. He was releasing hit singles, touring the world, and had married the singer Lachey. But newfound fame and success come with added pressure. And Master Ace found his own way to cope. Was I was drinking. I would drink before shows. And I felt, because I was very energetic on stage, but something in me felt like when I drank, I was more energetic. And so before every show, on when I was doing those dates back then, I would, you know, have a couple of good, good-sized drinks. And it was actually my wife who pulled me to the side one day. And I don't even know if, I don't know if it was something that she noticed. She just kind of reminded me how my, my, my father died. He drank, my, my, my father drank himself to death. He, he, he died of sclerosis of the liver. And it was kind of like, you know, you come from him, you may have the same propensity to become an alcoholic. And while he was fighting back his own demons, he found a way to keep working. Master Ace Incorporated was making their mark. And with the success of the Slaughterhouse album, they were all set to release the 1994 hit single, Born to Roll. The Master Ace don't play when it comes to my bass. Ah, check it out, baby. Check it out, dog. Check it out, baby. Check it out, dog. Check it out, baby. Check it out, dog. Check it out, baby. I was born to roll. The single was massively successful and would set the tone for the 1995 album, Sitting on Chrome. At this point, hip-hop had gone down a dark road as the East Coast-West Coast rivalry was in full swing. And Master Ace, being a native New Yorker, signed to an L.A. label, wanted to bridge the gap. Because of the type of album that I was doing, I knew that it was going to be viewed as attempting to cater to the West Coast audience. I viewed it as me trying to blend the best of both worlds. The boom bap and the West Coast vibe. I was trying to bring those two things together and create this new sound. It was a tough gap to bridge because people were so dug in on their position. you either West Coast or you East Coast. There's no in between. You can't be in between, and that's what I was trying to do. And to make matters a little more complicated, he and Delicious Vinyl weren't necessarily seeing eye to eye. I always look at that album as my compromise album because the label, Delicious Vinyl, when they saw the success of Born to Roll, they sat me down and they said, listen, you're on to something with this car culture shit. Like, these Mexican kids, these white kids in LA, they are they loving what you did with that song. Can you do a whole album of this? And I was like, I can. It's not what I would have wanted to do. So when I went in the studio, I said, I'm gonna try to give them what they're asking for, but still do what I wanna do. Had I not had that sit down with them, my third album would not have sounded anything like that. It would have been a whole nother thing. I looked at their success with Young MC and Tone Loke, and I said, well, here's a label being very vocal about what they want. If I give them what they want, maybe they'll take me to platinum with like these guys did. So I was like, I'll take a shot, see what happens. And ball, the ball got dropped. For all we know, like, that third album could have been my magnum opus album that sent me through the stratosphere, but because I was trying to adhere to what this label was asking me for, I made this album instead. So I never got to make whatever that album might have been that might have turned me into this huge megastar. We'll never know. The label really did believe that this was the right avenue to take, so much so that they marketed the album pretty heavy. The singles Born to Roll and the INC Ride got him more radio play than he'd ever seen. And as a result... That album sold more than any of my other albums because of the radio play. It just got me to see how 
that part of it works, how the commercial radio game works. And, you know, you got to do shows for free. You got to do these three-minute interviews at the station with a guy on Z90 who doesn't know any of your music, just knows that one song, doesn't even know you had a career before that one song. And so I, I got to taste that world a little bit. I didn't like it that much, but... You know, I went with the flow. The album Sitting on Chrome hit the U.S. Billboard Top 200 and the U.S. Top R&B Hip Hop Albums charts. When Sitting on Chrome dropped, I had high hopes for what was going to happen because I had given the label what they asked for. I gave them a car culture album. I gave them the cover was car culture. I really thought that, okay, now I'm going to finally get this platinum plaque. You know, or at least this gold plaque. And in the middle of all this momentum, with his songs being played on the radio nonstop, Delicious Vinyl changes distributors. That means all of his records left the shelves. This killed any hopes of a gold or platinum album. And I'm sitting here like this, like, I did what you asked me to do, and now y'all messing up. Like, and so it was just a frustrating time for me. Then I'm dealing with the backlash at New- in New York about me being this West Coast sellout that you know, basically sold out his home for the other coast. So you combine those two things, it was not a happy time for me. Master Ace would go on to sign with an East Coast label in order to rehabilitate his image in hip-hop. But unfortunately, this arrangement didn't really work out. And in the year 2000, he embarked on another journey. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And when I got that diagnosis, it kind of felt like the end of the world. Like, damn, like, what's my future going to be? Am I going to not be able to walk, talk, see? Like, I didn't know where shit was going. It was at that moment that I got this determination in me that I was going to do this last record the way I wanted to do it. That's where it all came from. It came from that diagnosis. And in 2001, he released his album, Disposable Arts. Everything was looked at through that lens of, you might not be able to walk next year. You might not be able to see in two years. Do everything you could do while you could do it. You know, the, the diagnosis is one thing, but it, it, it really opened up my mind to life and what life is about and making the most of life. Because we, we could sit around all day and, oh, I don't feel like hiking. I don't feel like walking up a hill. I don't feel like learning how to snowboard. I did all of that stuff because I might not be able to do it one day. So I'm a snowboard. I'm going to ride my bike 50 miles just because I can. Like, people are like, why are you riding 50 miles? That's insane. Why would you do that? I don't know, one day I might not be able to ride a bike, period. So let me ride, do what I could do now. And that's been my mentality for the last 20 years. Just do everything that you can do while you could do it. Fresh Era is a Stupid Fly production. Written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and made even more amazing by DJ Cheap Shot. We would all be lost without Chris Barnett. Sean Berman is our mix engineer. Music by The Math Club. This is the end of season two, and I would encourage you to go back and re-listen to season one through season two and let us know what your favorite episodes are on Instagram at Fresh Era Podcast. Be sure to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. Season three of Fresh Era and season two of Headspin are coming soon. So as always, we'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era.